I tell you, brothers and sisters, you are a sight for sore eyes. It is so great to see you. <clears throat> it really is. You know, we, uh, we may take for granted the fact that we get to gather every Sunday uh, here, and I pray that we will never do that again. We'll never take it for granted. Uh, Jesus Christ said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so here we are, and uh, just thrilled. Amen. It's great, great to be back with you. Uh, I just have to take a moment to, to thank everybody who uh, got this ready. Uh, there is a lot of, of thought, a lot of man hours that went in behind the scenes to, to get us back here. And so I thank all of our deacons. I thank uh, everybody in the AV booth, the elders who helped plan this, uh, all of you for cooperating and uh, sitting uh, socially distancing as we must, but at least we're in the same room together. And so uh, the worship team has just done a great job keeping us uh, together and uh, worshiping the Lord over these past few months. And I am just uh, thrilled to be back here. Uh, so uh, we just worship the Lord today. We are just so grateful to be here, so grateful to be back in his house, so grateful to have fellowship together. Uh, and uh, I miss you all. And I'm really, really happy to see your faces. And uh, for those of you on Facebook, uh, hopefully we'll see you back here soon. Um, I'm glad you didn't come, actually, because I don't know where we'd put you. So uh, we're, 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 uh, we're working on it. It's a work in progress, but uh, God has been good and gracious to us, and uh, we just praise his holy name today. Uh, so let's uh, bow our heads before we begin our message today. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful to you. We are so grateful for your provision. We're so grateful for this building for this uh, faithful body of believers uh, who loves you uh, and has come to worship you this morning, Lord, uh, we, we just thank you for all that you're doing. Lord, we pray that uh, the message today will uh, be encouraging and, uh, Lord, that we would just leave here uh, with a, a sense of how awesome you are, uh, even greater than we already have, Lord. Uh, we love you. We are so thankful for all you have done, and we pray uh, today, especially as we consider that it's Memorial Day. Uh, we're so thankful for the sacrifice that so many have made to ensure the freedom that we have in our country. Uh, Lord, there are many families suffering today because they have lost loved ones as a result of the sacrifice given for our freedom, and we pray for them, Lord, that they would be comforted this day. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the service of those who have uh, so selflessly given uh, just like Jesus so selflessly gave, Lord, and we just uh, want to remember everybody, every veteran, every family of a veteran on Memorial Day today. We are incredibly grateful, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Romans, and uh, the message today is called United with Christ, and it's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Uh, I don't know how many of you know, uh, maybe some of the people in our medical profession know, but uh, the first heart transplant, the first heart transplant ever performed on a human being was done on December 3rd, 1967 uh, in Cape Town, South Africa by a doctor by the name of Dr. Christian Bernard. And the heart actually uh, functioned fine, but sadly the patient died in about 18 days. The problem was that the anti-rejection medication that they had at the time uh, weakened his immune system to the point that he caught pneumonia and he died from pneumonia. 
Uh, but over time, the anti-rejection medicine got better uh, and didn't weaken the immune system so much. And so heart uh, transplant surgeries happen uh, you know, fairly frequently uh, right now. Uh, in fact, we're praying for Laura's son to have a successful heart transplant. He's on a list right now, and, and we pray for that. Uh, of course, the sad thing about that is that someone is going to have to uh, perish in order for that heart to be made available. So uh, heart transplant surgery is a difficult thing, uh, but if God would, would will it, uh, we, we lift up Brett uh, for that heart transplant surgery. But when we think about heart transplant surgery uh, now, uh, you know, for everybody but the patient, I guess, heart transplant surgery is relatively routine. Uh, they, they, uh, the, the patients tend to survive. Uh, there's a 75% three-year survival rate now. Uh, but what's il really interesting to me is that there was a recent study done about people who have had heart transplant surgeries. They surveyed 47 people who had heart transplant surgeries, and three people actually reported a change in personality as a result of their heart transplant surgery. And so uh, one guy in particular was very interesting to me because he said he was a 45-year-old man and he got the heart of a 17-year-old uh, boy slash man. And he said, uh, you know, now I like to crank the stereo up, stereo up really loud, listen to really loud music, and all I can think about is getting a really a hot, sharp car and uh, I want to drive around and cruise in my new sharp car. And, uh, you know, he said... Uh, I think about things that I never thought about before uh, now that I have this 17-year-old heart. So uh, he reported personality change. Now, some doctors said, you know, uh, there probably is some validity to that because some doctors believe that the heart actually retains memories just like the brain does. Uh, but then other researchers have said, no, there's no biological connection. There's no reason why uh, a heart transplant should affect the memory. So uh, really, we don't know. Uh, and so whether the heart transplant can affect memories or change personality, that is certainly debatable. But what we do know for sure is that if you have had a new heart given to you by the Holy Spirit, well, then you should definitely show behavioral changes. Your life should be changed, and you should exhibit different behavior. And so uh, we're not talking about a new physical heart, of course. We're talking about a new spiritual heart. And, and today we're just going to start to talk about how that happens in a believer's life. And it's important today because uh, we want to know uh, that we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And when we've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we will begin to see fruits of that. Our lives should change. And Jesus is the great physician. And if he gives us a heart transplant... Well, we should see life change. Well, we have now reached chapter 6 in this magisterial book of Romans. And uh, so what we have seen so far is in chapters 1 through 3, we saw that we are all under condemnation for sin. There is no one who can plead ignorance. There is no one who can plead innocence. We are all guilty of sin, and we all uh, deserve the penalty of death. But then Paul moved on. <clears throat> in chapters 3 to 5, and he talked about our salvation, our justification, and we have seen that God has provided a way uh, of salvation through the blood of Jesus. And so in chapter 3, he talked to us about uh, this, this uh, justification, how we're made righteous in God's sight when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for our Savior, and I will no longer suffer the penalty for our sin. Uh, so that was chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, uh, Paul used Abraham as his example to show that, look, it's not by works, it is by faith that we are saved. 
And Abraham is his illustration. How was Abraham saved? Was he saved by works? No, he was saved by faith. Was he saved by law? No, he was saved by faith. He was saved, he was declared righteous before the covenant of circumcision. He was declared righteous before the law. He was declared righteous before he offered Isaac on the altar. And so it's by faith that Abraham was saved and not by works. And so uh, Paul emphasizes this because we need to understand that we don't earn our salvation. It is a free gift from God. But that doesn't mean that there is no place for works in a believer's life. There is a place for works in the believer's life because when we believed, when we received the Holy Spirit, well, he came in and he moved inside of us. He dwells with us and our lives change. And as uh, he put it in Ephesians 2, he said, we are created in Christ Jesus to do the works that God prepared in advance for us to do. And so that is our salvation and then our mission to go forward and, and do the works that God has for us to do. But you know, if salvation was the end of the story, we would just be justified and then God would take us right up to heaven, right? End of story. But God has much more planned for us than that. His plan is not just to save us, to make us but to make us more Christ-like, uh, to be light in a dark world. And that's what we'll start to talk about now in chapters 6 to 8. It's about how we live now, how we are changed, how we can do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And so we're moving into this section that we're calling sanctification. Uh, Christians are dead to sin and to the law, but alive to Christ and eternally secure in our salvation. And so we'll cover that over the next uh, several weeks. And so we might call uh, this section the road of sanctification or the road to Christ-likeness, uh, something like that. Because chapter 6 now is about our new relationship to sin. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we now have a new relationship to sin. And Paul will say, we are dead to sin. But you'll remember, at the end of chapter 5, uh, Paul wrote, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And when we talked about it earlier, I showed you this picture uh, of uh, this ship that is called the Seawise Giant. It's the largest ship that's ever built, and I told you to imagine this ship as your sin. But then look at the ocean that the Seawise Giant floats on and picture that as God's grace. God's grace is always greater than our sin. And that's true, but that might prompt somebody who is steeped in the law to ask the question in response to Paul's teaching that is asked here in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. And so what I want us to see, first of all, is that a true believer cannot continue in sin because he died to it. And so we read verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, we've seen Paul's style in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul likes to anticipate a question that an objector is going to ask and then ask the question and answer it uh, so that he's covered the ground that he expects an objector to say. Uh, so this first question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's a rhetorical question, right? He really doesn't expect a yes answer to that. He's saying no, and he will say no in the strongest terms possible. And he'll explain that in the following verses. But we need to remember that Paul has been arguing all along uh, that we have been saved by grace and not by works. And so he's teaching this grace, and he's teaching grace to people who are steeped in law and steeped in performance. 
uh, and doing things. And so grace is a very difficult concept for somebody who is always doing, 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 and earning, earning, earning. How do we get ourselves out of the mindset of I have to perform, there's more to do, I have to earn this. And, and this is Paul's goal. I have to explain grace because grace is, is it's, it's something beyond what they ever had a concept of in terms of how they related to the law. So the danger in misunderstanding grace, it's obvious, right? The danger is that people may think that grace is too good to be true. It can't be that easy. Surely I have to do something because the law says I have to do something. And these people had been accustomed to trying to earn and trying to do through the law. And so that's why Paul's teaching on grace sounded heretical to them. He was accused of being uh, against the law, antinomian. Uh, Namos is the Greek word for law, so against the law, antinomian is is the term that would have been applied to him. And they objected to Paul's teaching because it would lead people to think that uh, you can just do anything you want now that you have your free uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. And that was the objection that he's anticipating uh, from the people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, anybody who was steeped in the law. So Paul poses these questions to show the attitude of someone who has not been saved, who has not received grace, who has not understood his salvation, because when you have received grace, you understand that a change has happened to you. But if you haven't, the question seems very logical, right? I mean, if sin causes God to give even greater grace, don't we give him greater glory by continuing to sin? seems like a logical question. Uh, But Paul knew that this is what the Jews believed, and so he needed to answer this objection. And to the person, uh, let's just put ourselves in their shoes, to the person who has not received grace, not uh, been steeped in grace, understood grace, this would be difficult to understand. Uh, If your life has never been changed by grace, if you've never experienced the love of Christ and the life change that comes with grace, you might not understand the repugnancy of your own sin. And that person would think of grace as a free get-out-of-jail card. And they might think, well, I'm just going to go and uh, sow my oats as much as I want to because I have grace here in my back pocket. And Paul is saying, no, that's not what grace is. Uh, And that's what he wants us to understand. Something happens to us when we receive God's grace. And our hearts are changed. And, And that's why Paul... He needed to tell them about justification first, right? First, you are saved. And here's what Paul said about justification. It's the one-time legal declaration by God, the righteous judge, that he views me and declares me as totally righteous once and for all because I am in Christ by faith. So when we see that, what we understand is that justification happened in the past, right? It's a one-time event. It happens at a moment in time, even if you can't identify that moment in time. You were justified if you've been saved. You were justified at a moment in time, and the Lord has declared you righteous, not guilty of sin. But that's just the beginning, right? If we have, if we have truly been saved, the Holy Spirit now indwells us, and we should be forever saved. So justification is the one-time event uh, that happened in a moment uh, in the past, but a justified believer will spend the rest of his life growing in the faith. And so this word sanctification that we will use during these next several chapters is uh, it's simply an ongoing progressing work of the Holy Spirit in every believer that won't be completed until heaven. So 
So this word sanctification or sanctify uh, comes from the root word uh, hagiatso that means to be set apart. Like if you ever saw uh, moms, if you came down and saw your kids eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on your fine china, you would say like, no, that china has been set apart. You don't get to use that for just your regular peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's been reserved for a special purpose. And that's what we are as believers. We've been set apart. Uh, we're not regular anymore. We're set apart for God's specific purpose that he has for us. And so it's just becoming more and more Christ-like as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So I want us to understand that justification and sanctification are certainly related, but they're not the same. Uh, justification starts a process, a lifelong process, and I want us to think about it like a timeline. Justification happened at this point in time where you believed in Jesus as your Savior. And then that begins the start of this thing called progressive sanctification, where we are progressively, increasingly becoming more like Christ as time goes on. And that is going to continue because uh, any of you who have been saved for any length of time at all know that sanctification is a battle, right? Sometimes sanctification, uh, you know, it, it can give us a beating sometimes. It's one step forward, two steps back uh, as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit uh, to, to change our lives. Uh, and the battle with sin is going to be uh, continuing until the day we die, and it will end uh, at this end point in time called glorification when God takes us home to heaven. And so uh, if you've experienced grace, if you've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, your life has been changed. And so Paul wants them to know that, look, you're not now trying to think about how you're going to get away with as much as you possibly can. That's not how a believer thinks. A believer thinks, how can I be holy and pleasing to the Lord, and how can I kill this sin so that my life is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord? And so that's why Paul answers this objection so forcefully. Uh, shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul says, may it never be. Uh, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, so this phrase, may it never be, we've seen this now in Romans a couple of times. The Greek is meganoito, and it is the strongest way that you can deny something in the Greek language. The, the old King James Version says, uh, God forbid, uh, just as strong a language as we can possibly use to say, no, that's not how we are to con continue to live. So let's understand when, when Paul says this. He's not talking about your, uh, you know, accidental uh, sin where, you know, you just, you make a mistake. He, he's not talking about that kind of sin. He's talking about willful, intentional, habitual sin that marked our old life and is continuing on into our new life. And, and we show no desire uh, to deal with that sin in our lives. Now, I think Paul wants us to know that a true believer will never be comfortable in his sin. He's never going to say, uh, this is just how I am, and leave it at that. He's going to recognize that his sin is incompatible uh, with who he is in Christ as a new creation. And that's not to say that believers will not occasionally sin. Of course, we will occasionally sin. And that's not to say that that sin is going to cost us our salvation. Of course not. When we have received Jesus as our Savior, we were saved once and for all. We're eternally sealed and secure. We don't lose our salvation. But as I said, 
life is a lifelong battle. Uh, sanctification is a lifelong battle. Uh, we will battle uh, with sin uh, if we are truly saved. And our sin and our attitude towards sin really is a litmus test uh, for uh, how we, we uh, perceive our salvation. Uh, if we sin over and over again, uh, continuing in the same kind of sin with no remorse, no desire to conquer that sin, uh, then I think it's fair and probably even wise to ask if we truly have been saved. I have a friend uh, who was a newer believer at the time, and he said to me, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm saved. I can't feel the Holy Spirit inside of me. And he desperately wanted to know that he was saved. Uh, and he was worried that since he couldn't feel the Holy Spirit, well, you know, maybe he's not there. Maybe, maybe he's not saved. And so I asked him, uh, have you noticed any changes in your life since you have been saved, since you, so you've, you've professed faith in Christ? And he said, yes, I, I have. I, I, I do hate my sin more. I am trying to, to, to stop doing the sin that, that I've been doing, uh, but I still don't feel the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, you know, you're not necessarily going to feel the Holy Spirit in your body like a pregnant mother might feel her baby kicking inside of her, right? That's not what the Holy Spirit does. That's not how we know the Holy Spirit is there. Uh, we feel him by the changes that he is making in our lives, uh, by our attitude towards sin, by our increasing desire to please God, and by a change in our behavior. And so we're becoming less who we used to be, children of sin, and more of who God wants us to be, uh, holy, sanctified, set apart to him, uh, and better able to listen and obey to the promptings of, a holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that a believer uh, is bothered by his sin is evidence that he is saved and that he is uh, trying to obey the Holy Spirit. Believers are going to hate their sin more and more and will hate it so much that the next time we do it, we're going to be even more repulsed by it and, and turn away from it even harder. And this is where the fallacy comes in, that we should continue to sin so that grace may increase, so that God would get more glory. Uh, the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us. This is God himself living inside of us. And he didn't come and indwell us so that he could live side by side as, as roommates with our sin. That's not what God had in mind. Uh, God came to indwell us so that he could help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to purge ourselves uh, of our sin. Uh, he didn't come to excuse our sin, uh, to rationalize our sin, to give us license to sin. He came to kill our sin and to give us the power to kill the sin in our lives that we never had before. Now, Paul says that a Christian is someone who has died to sin. How shall we who have died to sin continue in it? Well, the first thing I want us to notice is that it's not sin that died. Do you see that? Sin is out there. Sin is always going to be out there. It's, it's constantly lurking around every corner trying to ensnare us. So sin has not died. It's us who have died. We have died to sin. So what does that mean? Well, when Jesus went to the cross, he paid the penalty for every sin that you and I have committed or will ever commit. And when we believe in him and we trust in him for our salvation, uh, then we are, as Paul uh, frequently termed it, we are in Christ. We are covered with Christ. He is our, now our savior. He is our representative to do for us what we could never have done for ourselves. That is to save our souls and to make us more Christ-like. 
and he stands before the Father right now, interceding for us on our behalf and defending us against Satan's accusations. And we will not be found guilty of sin because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we receive Jesus as our Savior, uh, his death became our death too, in a very real way. The saved person has received the Holy Spirit, and he has died, past tense, to sin. It's not that he's dying to sin. It's not that he ought to die to sin. He has died to sin. It is done. And so a real change has happened that affects our relationship to sin from now on. And on the day of our salvation, two things happen. We received a birth certificate. We are reborn. We are a new creation. But we also received a death certificate. We have killed the old man to a degree, and we have been raised as a new man. And, and Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed. The new things have come. So we are new creations, and you know, we still have the vestiges of that old man inside of us who still wants to uh, have his own way and live for the flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit now, things have changed, and so we have died to sin in that way. And the only thing left to do now is to grow up in the faith, uh, to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit and listen uh, so that we don't allow sin to have power over us. I want us to think about death for a minute because this idea of died to sin actually means that we have, uh, we've mortified ourselves, we've killed ourselves to sin. So when you're dead, uh, gluttony, lust, uh, whatever sin you happen to have a particular difficulty with in your life, uh, that sin no longer has attraction to you, right? Why? because you're dead. No sin has any attraction to you. Uh, you can't uh, respond to its attraction anymore. And so when we are reborn, we are dead to sin too. Uh, we died to that sin when we were saved. And Paul's question, how shall we live in it any longer, is future tense. We've died to it past tense. How can we live in it anymore? Future tense. We can't live in the future for what we've already died to in the past. Uh, I thought that the Message Bible, uh, the Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible, he translated this verse like this. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or did you not realize that we packed up there and left for good? Uh, I thought that was a cute way to say it. And just to take it a little further, uh, imagine you changed your citizenship from uh, living in uh, a citizenship of North Korea, for example, and you move now to the United States. Well, you are no longer under the regime of a dictator who controls every single aspect of your life, like sin may before you are a believer. Now you've moved into the United States and you are free. Now you're not gonna live under the laws of a dictator in North Korea when you're free in a new country now. That's what is happening when we kill ourselves to sin and we raise up as the new man. Uh, now we don't live in the realm of sin anymore. Now we live in the realm of indwelt believers who live to please the Lord and to make ourselves more holy. And now Paul used an illustration from baptism to explain this even further. So the first thing we see, a true believer cannot continue in sin because he has died to it. The second thing, a true believer cannot continue in sin because he has been buried and raised in baptism. So verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore... 
we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. And so here Paul explained uh, the death to our old life and the start of our new life. And I want us to see that it starts with knowledge. Do you see that right in verse 3? We have to know something. We have to know about our salvation. And then we can take that knowledge and we can apply it to our lives and live according to the knowledge that we have. Uh, Paul uses this verb, know, several times in chapter 6 and 7. He says, uh, right here, he says, do you not know? Uh, verse 6, knowing this. Verse 9, knowing that. Verse 16, do you not know? Uh, and verse chapter 7, verse 1, do you not know? So uh, over and over again, he's trying to explain to them, you need to know this in order to uh, take this into your life and, and to live it out now. And so what he wants them to know is that we have been buried into Christ Jesus, uh, baptized through his death and raised with him to newness of life. And so that's verses 3 and 4. You know, when you read this, uh, we can't tell, and the commentators are divided about whether Paul is talking about spiritual baptism or whether he's talking about water baptism. Uh, spiritual baptism, of course, is when we receive the Holy Spirit, we're baptized by the Spirit, and we're saved. Water baptism is when we uh, symbolically go under the water and come up, come up out of the water, representing our death and burial and our new life in Christ. Uh, Paul didn't elaborate, so it's hard to tell. But I would like to point out uh, that today, uh, baptism is different than it was in the first century. In the first century, if you professed belief, you were immediately baptized. So there was almost no separation in time between belief and baptism. Uh, we don't do it like that anymore. Today, uh, we'd be sure that you take classes to, under, to be sure you understand your salvation and to understand what baptism is. Uh, and it may be weeks, months, years. Some people actually never get baptized after they believe. Uh, so that's not how it was in the first century. In the first century, Paul, uh, the believers at Pentecost, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Cornelius and his family, the Philippian jailer, uh, they all believed and they were baptized. And so it was very close in time. And so uh, I tend to think that Paul was probably talking about both spiritual baptism and water baptism, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, we have to just be sure that we understand that baptism doesn't save, our water baptism doesn't save. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so we see that there's a separation. There's the gospel. He needs people to believe the gospel and then be baptized. But because they were close in time, it may be uh, that Paul was talking about the same events. But whether that's true or not, uh, whether he meant spiritual and water baptism, what we have to get here is our unity with Christ. That's the thing that's very important here. Uh, we have to have our unity with Christ. And that's what these verses are about. We're we're unified with him, we're identified with him through spiritual baptism and through water baptism by burial into his death so that just as Jesus died, we died too. And just as he was resurrected to new life, so we have been resurrected into new life too. And this illustration shows us that as Jesus was di died and was buried for sin, we have been died, we have died and we have been buried to sin, that we will no longer live in it anymore. And it has no, no longer has the same power 
over our lives. So yes, we, we will continue to sin from time to time, but we have to always remember that we must be united to Jesus every step in the way because, of the way because sin may knock on your door uh, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can now resist it. And even if you fail, as long as you stay united to Christ, uh, you're forgiven of that sin and you will, you'll regret that sin, you'll repent of it, you'll put it aside and you'll continue your walk forward in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what uh, the newness of life means. The old man has gone. The new man has come. And you can now live a life that is free from bondage to sin. And that's the third point. We can't continue in sin because he is, we have been buried in, uh, with him and raised in baptism. And a believer cannot continue in sin because he has been freed from sin's power. Verses 5 through 7. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, because he who has died is freed from sin. And so we saw the first thing Paul wants us to know is that we have been buried into Christ Jesus uh, and then baptized into his death and raised into the newness of life. That's verse 3 and 4. And here, the second thing Paul wants us to know is now that we are, we are freed from sin's power because our old self was crucified with him. And so when we believe for salvation and receive the Holy Spirit, we were united to him. And this word united, it's a very strong word. It means to grow together, even grafted together, so that you can't even see, uh, if you could look at such a thing, any space between. Uh, you're, you're united to the point of being bonded together. There's no separation. And that's how close the bond has to be in our unity with Christ Jesus. And it must remain if we're going to continue to grow in, in Christ Jesus. And so when we trusted him, that part of us that lived in open, hostile, uh, intentional rebellion against God died. And it's not that we'll ever be sinless, but we will sin less. And you know, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, that sometimes the Holy Spirit graciously chooses one sin at a time uh, to show to you, right? He doesn't hit you with the whole wheelbarrow on the first day because that would be so discouraging. Uh, he works on this particular area of your life, and then uh, when you've made some progress there, he'll work on this particular area of your life, and you'll continue to grow uh, by the nullifying power of the Holy Spirit who convicts us and shows us of our need to change. And now that we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to resist sin and its temptations and desires. And again, the energizing factor in all of this is unity with Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we identify with him, when we are unified with him by our baptism in the Holy Spirit, and just as he was raised in victory over death, so we are set free from the bondage of sin. Now, you know that there are many people who enjoy their sin, right? And when you talk to them about being set free from the bondage of sin, they would say, well, why do I want to do that? I'm having a great time. Uh, and we have to understand that as believers, that sin is fun for a time. But what we know about sin, any of us who have lived in it for any period of time, is that the bill 
for sin always comes due, right? The bill always comes due. And sooner or later, uh, Satan is going to use that sin to shipwreck our lives. And uh, if, you've been a, if you came to faith later in life, uh, you may have experienced some of that shipwreck. And uh, it takes a while to rebuild uh, a shipwrecked ship. So uh, we just thank God for his grace in, in, in working with us slowly, graciously, gently. Uh, but we have to understand where our unbelieving friends are coming from. And we have to uh, if they ask us, why should we abandon this life of sin, we have to be prepared to explain to them where sin leads, and then on the other hand, where life in Christ leads. Uh, and so we have to be aware of that, because what we want now is we want people to understand that if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the power to say yes to freedom and no to sin. Uh, and when you're truly free of something, uh, there is nothing more... Uh, freeing. There's nothing more powerful than that, to know that you are free uh, from sin. And this freedom to a new life is what we strive for. So I want to give us just two applications to show us if we have a healthy uh, attitude uh, toward our own sin. And so the first one is this. Uh, I'll just ask us all, uh, have you, have we, have we been too easy on our own sin? Have you changed since you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Uh, if you pray more, if you read the Bible more, if you hate your sin more, if you want to be more like Jesus, if you want to love his people more, well, then you're in the process of being sanctified. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. And I don't want you to use that as kind of like a checklist, but it is a guide as to whether you are uh, moving forward in your life uh, with Christ. If your life looks exactly the same as it did before you were saved, uh, and, and if you're quick to tolerate or excuse or rationalize your own sin, well, then you may need to examine yourself. Uh, true believers know that the price that Jesus paid on the cross uh, was because of our sin. It's our sin that put him there. So we want to repent of that sin. And we want to look different from the rest of the world and the rest of culture. And we want to show the world that we're growing in faith in Christ and our love for Jesus and we should know that our sins ensnare us personally, and they're a, a terrible witness to anybody who's watching us, seeing us call ourselves Christians, and then going out and living a debauched life. Uh, so we just ask ourselves uh, gently, uh, are you justified? And are you growing? And does your life show it? And if so, ask yourself, have you been too easy on your sin? But there's a corollary to this, and that is, have you been too hard on your sin? I need us to understand this because uh, we have to understand grace too. Remember to give yourself grace. The Christian walk uh, is a life of total obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we all know that we're incapable of that. We have no ability to be completely free of sin. And that's why Jesus Christ came. Because if, we'd all, if we were all perfect, then we would have no need of a Savior. And Jesus Christ would not have needed to come and die on our behalf. And so Jesus came to be perfect on our behalf because we could never be. And Jesus doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect us to trust him, to make up uh, for everything that's lacking in us, which is a lot, uh, to bring us into heaven and to continue to grow in the faith. So when we fail, when we fall, when we sin, uh, we need to remember that Jesus Christ has already died for that sin. He has paid the penalty for that sin already. And so you don't have to punish yourself for that sin because Jesus already took the penalty for that sin. So give yourself the same grace that the Lord Jesus Christ gives. 
Now, I don't mean for that to be a license to sin. That would be against everything that this passage has been talking about. Uh, hate your sin, repent of it, but since God has forgiven you of that sin, forgive yourself too. Don't be too hard on yourself. Continue to grow. So you should find yourself somewhere between those two poles. Uh, not being too hard on your sin, but not being too soft on your sin. Recognize sin for what it is, but don't kill yourself over it. Repent of it, and then get back on the horse and walk again. Grace is the gift that just keeps on giving. It's grace that saved us in the past. It's grace that sustains us in the future and allows us to have this new life in Christ. And it's eventually grace that is going to bring us home to heaven in the future. And so Paul started this passage with the question, what shall we say then? And so I finish with the same question, what shall we say then to these marvelous things? And there's nothing to say except thank you, Lord. Thank you for the indescribable gift of your son and the grace that he brings. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord God, I am so grateful for grace. I need it so desperately in my life. Lord, I am a work in progress, uh, and you are chiseling away. All the old sin, all of the old man uh, still, uh, all the old man that still lives in me, and I know you're still doing it for this congregation, Lord, as we try uh, to become more Christ-like. And yet, since we know we'll never get there, we are so thankful for the grace that you provide, Lord, because we can't be perfect. And it's for that reason that you came and died on a cross for our sins, Lord. And so we thank you for grace. I don't know that we could ever fully understand the gift, all that we've been given on this side of heaven. But we look forward to being with you again someday, Lord, and uh, just reveling in your glory for all eternity. And we thank you for the cross and the resurrection that makes it all possible. Lord, thank you for the ability to gather here again today, Lord, and we pray that we're able to continue to do it in the future, that, uh, uh, Lord, we'll just conquer this coronavirus and be able to uh, figure out ways to be together in the future, Lord. We just thank you for the incredible gift of the church, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.